From 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR, this is Lake Effect. I'm Joy Powers. Today we'll learn why undocumented farm workers are unable to get driver's licenses and the impact it has on their lives. Then we'll learn about ballroom culture and the community it fosters for LGBTQ people of color. It's very important because there are limited spaces for us to be ourselves where black and brown people can see people like themselves or just queer people in general, right? And so these spaces are created and needed for that very purpose. Plus, we'll visit an exhibition that transports visitors to a future where invasive species have emerged from the Great Lakes and taken over our world. It's kind of like Beyond Van Gogh meets the streets of old Milwaukee meets Alice in Wonderland. It's an immersive art experience. All of that is coming up on Lake Effect. But first, here are today's headlines. This is Lake Effect from 89.7 WUWM. Milwaukee's NPR. I'm Joy Powers, and thank you so much for joining us. In Wisconsin, undocumented immigrants aren't able to get driver's licenses. This presents a huge issue for farm workers who live in rural areas where driving is a necessity. Two new reports from ProPublica are looking at how this issue is impacting the people we rely on to run Wisconsin's dairy farms. Melissa Sanchez is one of the reporters behind this reporting, and she joins me now to talk about it. Melissa, thank you so much for joining us here on Lake Effect. Thank you for having me. Right now, if you're an undocumented person working on a dairy farm in Wisconsin, what does your life typically look like day to day? That's a good question. So life is pretty brutal for a lot of these workers. A lot of times workers work multiple shifts in a day, and they could be four or five, six-hour shifts, and then a few hours of a break, and then another shift of a similar length. Very often workers live on the farms where they where they work. So they might live in an old farmhouse on the property, um, in a trailer on the property. They might live in an apartment nearby that the employer provides for them. It's often a life that's very isolated because they can't freely leave the property and drive to go do anything because they're not legally allowed to drive. They're not able to get driver's licenses. So workers often work these long, long shifts and multiple shifts over and over, um, maybe 60, 70 hours a week is the average. And they rarely get to leave the farms because of this driver's license issue. Your piece gets into this, but uh, I think even as someone who grew up in a more rural part of Wisconsin, and I actually don't know how to drive, I can tell you there is a lot of stuff that becomes limiting. When I go home to my hometown, there's a lot of stuff I can't do, and I'm not even in a, a very rural part of that area. In your piece, you talk about, you know, just getting a haircut, going to the grocery store, dropping your kids off at school. What are some of the many things that uh, people have to do and have to drive to do? All of that. So for workers, one of the most important things that they have to do is go to the grocery store to cash their checks and wire money home and buy groceries. That's difficult to do without a driver's license. Many people do it anyway. Or they'll they'll pay somebody to give them a ride there. Or sometimes a farmer might take the workers there. I've met workers who haven't been able to register their kids for school, both because of the, the awkwardness of their shifts and because they don't have a driver's license or a way to get to the school. Um, people don't go to the doctors, again, both because they don't know where or how to get to the doctors and they, they can't drive. It's like every everything that you need to do, it's already difficult because of language, because of immigration status, because you don't know 
how to accomplish the thing, but then it's doubly impacted because of the driver's license issue. One, one place in particular that I heard a lot from workers about was immigration court. A lot of people, especially Nicaraguan immigrants, have entered the U.S. legally as asylum seekers, and that's something that the government lets them do. So they do come in with, with a, the formal process, but then they can't make their immigration court hearings because they can't get to court. They, they don't have a ride or they can't drive there. And then once they miss their court hearings, they sort of become illegal. They lose their right to be here because, because they're no longer actively keeping up with court. So even people who are legally in the country are having an issue as a result of this. Exactly, right, because they, they might not have all the right papers they need in order to get a driver's license at the start. And and by the time they're able to get those papers, or they would have been able to get those papers, they haven't because they weren't able to get there in the first place because of the driver's license. It's like there's catch-22s all over the place for this issue. So every day there are people who have to break the law in order to do these basic things. It's interesting. You're allowed to register a car in Wisconsin if you're undocumented. You just can't get a driver's license. What's at stake when undocumented people are forced into the criminal justice system through driving without a license? There's a lot at stake. I mean, the the there are people who are very afraid to drive, but they do it anyway. So people are living with this constant stress of when every time they get behind the wheel. A lot of immigrants have experienced being pulled over multiple times. Um, I've talked to people who've been pulled over seven or eight times in the past couple of years. And, and it's interesting, like you mentioned, that people are allowed to own and register their vehicles. They just can't drive them. So the state lets you register a car and get the plates and say America's Dairyland on them. But then if you drive it, the fact that you were an undocumented person who got those plates puts a target on your back because police can do random plate checks and officers and sheriff's deputies all over the state will randomly check the plates of cars that drive past them. And if they check your plates and you're undocumented, they will see that the owner of the registered vehicle does not have a license and that gives them a pretext to pull you over. And so what's at stake with, with, a, with a traffic stop, you, you can get a, a ticket and it starts at either $124 or $200, depending on, on where you've gotten your ticket and if it's your first or not. The second ticket can go to $300, $400, $500 with each repeated offense. And the tickets become criminal matters, which means that you have mandatory court appearances, that there's a possibility of jail time. And in counties where there's the 287G agreements, these formal agreements with ICE, with immigration, federal immigration authorities, there's this ever-present possibility of deportation that kind of like hangs in the background. And so folks who are out driving without a driver's license know that they're at risk of getting pulled over, of getting ticketed, of a huge cost financially for them, of arrest, of deportation. Now, it's important to note that it wasn't always this way in Wisconsin. In fact, before 2006, undocumented immigrants were allowed to get driver's licenses. What happened that changed that? So the law changed that year as a result of the Federal Real ID Act, which was ostensibly like an attempt to reduce the risk of of terrorism attacks. So it forced states to change the kinds of driver's licenses they offered and to ask for proof of citizenship or other kind of legal status here. And that was to prevent foreigners from going to some state and getting a driver's license and using that license to board a plane and commit an act of terrorism. 
And so when that happened, Wisconsin soon changed its law. It had previously allowed undocumented people to get licenses, but it stopped doing that. And so that, that's been in place since then. And you, you meet workers today who still have their old expired driver's licenses, and they, they still use them during traffic stops. Sometimes they're successful and sometimes they're not. But right now, Wisconsin is one of 31 states that does not allow undocumented immigrants to get any kind of driver's licenses. And these other states, they have separate kinds of driver's permits or licenses for undocumented immigrants. Interestingly, there has been a bipartisan movement behind changing this law, but it it still hasn't happened. What are the roadblocks to getting this passed? So, you know, I'm not as much of an expert on Wisconsin politics as you or some of your audience, but it, it seems like it's just a really tough sell for some Republicans to get behind this. There's concern whether legitimate or not, that undocumented folks will use driver's licenses to vote. There's this idea that if you restore driver's licenses to undocumented people, that you're giving them some sort of benefit and and kind of prioritizing them over other people. And what I've heard from Republican lawmakers who do support this is that there's just this feeling that supporting this, this kind of effort will mean like the state has sort of given up and allowed the the federal government has allowed Congress to not do its own job. Like at the end of the day, what's happening in Wisconsin is a reflection or a result of Congress's failure to do its job for decades. It's sort of like a federal problem has become like a, a state problem, a local problem, and state lawmakers are, are, are just kind of like unbending in their view of this. And a lot of them don't want to lose really Republican right-wing voters who who don't want to do anything that helps the so-called illegals who, who are in their country. And I used air quotes as I said that. <laughs> it, it is interesting because uh, one of the places that you went, Abbotsford, is a very Republican part of the state. And yet you spoke with a farmer at least, and there are many farmers who want this law to be changed because they see how it's impacting their workers and and honestly, uh, maybe more importantly for them, affecting their bottom line when people are being taken in. No, that, that's right. I think altogether we've spoken with a dozen dairy farmers in different parts of the state, and every single one of us tells us that they wish this law wasn't built this way. They, they want their workers to be able to drive, to get driver's licenses. There's sort of like two two realities that they're speaking of at the same time. On one side, they will tell you that they simply accept the papers of the people who apply to work at their farm so that they, when you ask them, do you employ undocumented immigrants, they will say, people give us documents and we accept them. And so we don't know the immigration status of our workers. But separately, on the other hand, they will also say that they are aware that their workers cannot get driver's licenses in Wisconsin, and they wish the law wasn't that way because it hurts their workers and it hurts their bottom line. So there's these two realities, like without openly articulating this, I hire undocumented people who cannot get driver's license. They say, I hire people whose papers I accept, and separately, my workers cannot get driver's licenses, and I'm aware of the state law that bans undocumented people from driving. It's a really interesting disconnect that exists, but I think it's the way people have to speak in order to avoid acknowledging openly that they are they are breaking the law. Well, and um, often voting for people who are quite against that, uh, hiring people who are undocumented. What do you see as the next steps in this process of getting undocumented people 
driver's licenses or at least access to driver's licenses? Or do you see this as kind of what it is right now, that things aren't going to change? I don't think I have a good enough pulse on how Wisconsin politics work. But what I what I hear from immigration advocates is that they're they're aware that what they've been doing in terms of, you know, having public protests about this issue and trying to, to rally attention that way, it's not effective enough to convince Republicans. And what they have to do is have these one-on-one conversations with lawmakers all over the state and in these kind of like small meetings to, to discuss the issues, not in a look at the poor immigrant and what they're suffering sort of way, but let's look at the bottom line. Let's, let's, let's look at what the industry has to say. Let's look at what, what police officers have to say. And different aspects of the community are telling Republican lawmakers that the law currently is not working for them. And I think these are the convers- these, these conversations have been happening for a while, but I, I'm hearing that there's more momentum now and there's more Republicans who are on board um, to do something about it. So we'll see if, if legislation is introduced later this year on the topic. But I, I think it's gonna be it's gonna be hard. I mean, I went to Abbotsford because I'd heard that there was a meeting like this in March, um, where there were four Republican lawmakers, the mayor, uh, some sheriffs, some some police chiefs, dairy farmers, other in, like civic and community leaders, and everybody was there to, to tell the lawmakers that please support something like this, and we we will keep voting for you if if you support this. But there's a real concern among lawmakers about getting primaried out, about doing something that might make might make them look soft on immigration, and then losing to an, a more Republican Republican in a in a future primary, and that's something that that lawmakers told me they are aware is a possibility. So a lot of them feel like they're kind of putting their necks out for something um, by 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 doing this. Well, Melissa, thank you so much for joining us here on Lake Effect. Thank you for having me. Melissa Sanchez is a reporter for ProPublica. At wuwm.com, you can find a link to her recent reporting and our previous conversation with her about Wisconsin's undocumented farm workers. And did you know you can listen to Lake Effect as a podcast? Search for Lake Effect wherever you get your podcasts to download and listen on demand. You can also follow WUWM on Instagram, where you'll find videos and pictures from news stories and Lake Effect interviews. In about 20 minutes, we'll visit a world where invasive species in the Great Lakes have taken over our world. But first, we'll learn about the history and impact of ballroom culture and what it means to LGBTQ people of color. That's coming up next on Lake Effect on 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR. Listening to Lake Effect on 89.7 WUWM. I'm Joy Powers. Ballroom culture, also known as ballroom, is a vibrant and dynamic subculture. It originated in the African American and Latino LGBTQ community in New York City in the 1920s. Today, ballroom culture has evolved into a global phenomenon with communities and competitions around the world. 
WUWM's Eric Von Fellow, Kobe Brown, explores this art form in his final installment of his We Gaze series, which explores the stories and unique experiences of Wisconsin's LGBTQ people. Kobe chats with Ricardo Wynn and Cantrell Gucci, promoters and coordinators of Milwaukee's first awards ball. Can you start by explaining for people who may not know, what is ballroom and what is a ball? So, first of all, ballroom was started by black and brown trans women, so I want to give respect to our sisters and sisters and brothers in the fight. And ballroom is a safe space for not just people of color, but LGBTQ people, QPLC individuals, where we come and we battle for prizes, um, we showcase our talents, our styles, all under a safe haven for trophies, cash, and um, credentials. And now you're telling me this is the first honors ball. Has there been other balls around in Milwaukee for a bit? Yeah, so um, ballroom has been here for many, many years. Um, it has been started by several people. And myself and um, up and coming legend Chad Alamikili um, revived the scene a couple years ago. Um, and so there's always balls around, um, and those should be put on by creditable ballroom people. Um, but we put this on into respect for the fact that ballroom has been around for so long here and we want to um, be in alignment with the Midwest Council as well. So having an honors ball of the year ball really honors people who've been doing the work, people who are walking categories, people who are up and coming stars and statements and up and coming legends. Yeah, no, you mentioned that it was started by brown and black queer folk. Uh, how important is it to keep these spaces accessible for those people who started it? It's very important because there are limited spaces for us to be ourselves. Um, it is limited spaces where black and brown people can see people like themselves or just queer people in general, right? And so these spaces are created and needed for that very purpose. Although ballroom is inclusive of all people because we have legends who are white, we have white you know, people who have helped in the scene too, but the space foundationally are for people of color. And so it's important for us to have that so that we have a safe space for us to be ourselves. Yeah, and again, you touched on this a little bit, but what is, uh, what is Milwaukee's community honoring? So we're honoring people who have been walking in and out of state. We're honoring people who have been committed to reviving the scene and the mission and the purpose of ballroom. And we're gonna have icons and legends in the building tonight. We have people coming from Chicago, St. Louis, California, Texas, New York. So it's a really big deal for us. Absolutely, and are there any, any categories that you're most interested in or looking forward to? So my favorite category is Sex Siren. That's no matter where I go in ballroom, East Coast, West Coast, Sex Siren is my favorite. And then my second favorite is um, Commentator versus Commentator because I do commentate, so I love to see other talents and what people are bringing to the table. Absolutely, and this is my last question for you because I know you're a busy guy. Um, what would you say to anyone who's curious about ballroom, who's looking for spaces that they can be themselves as a black or brown person or just a queer person or anyone who wants to be free in general? Yeah. So come and be a spectator, observe the scene, educate yourself, ask other ballroom leaders about history and knowledge and education. Also, you can follow us on MKE Vogue Nights as well, where we have a lot of education and we have events. We'll be hosting the Banshee Ball August 31st at This Is It Bar. Um, so just come around, get involved, get informed, ask questions, and then come into the space and see if you, if you have the courage to walk. 
My name is the icon, Kentrell Gorgeous Gucci. I am one of the promoters of the Milwaukee Honors Awards Ball. I am one of the, I am the first person to ever throw, me and Chad was the first two individuals to ever throw a ball in Milwaukee. I want to hear more about that. What was it like starting the first kind of ballroom events around Milwaukee and in the Midwest, really? So um, I originally started ballroom in Chicago with um, the icon Milan Christopher. I was kind of groomed by um, the icon Marcus Escada, which was the commentator because I commentate as well. And Chad was like, hey, you guys, we should throw a a ball come down in Milwaukee. I'm like, is it gonna come? And we threw a ball in Milwaukee and the first one was really, really good. And that was probably like, whoo, 15 years ago. Why is it important to have spaces like that here in Milwaukee? It's important to have spaces like this because you want people to be themselves. You want people to know just, you know how you just wanna have somewhere you can be yourself. So ballroom is good to be yourself, to be brave. Uh, and it's so much you can you get from ballroom. So it's such a fun and extreme arts culture of our community. Yeah. What is it about ballroom culture that inspires you? Oh, I just love to see the talent. The talent is what inspires me. Um, I love to see people voguing well. I love to see the fashion. I love to see the runway. And I most definitely love to see the sex sirens. <laughs> I keep hearing that's a popular category around here. What are some other of your favorite categories? Um, I love Virgin Vogue, and but Milwaukee, twerk is one of their favorite, and I love twerk here. Okay, okay, absolutely. I love to hear that. Now, also, I've been seeing there's been a movement started protecting ballroom culture. How can people protect the sacred culture and also support it and uh, see it grow? Um, I would say make sure whatever it is you get with people who's uh, like raised in ballroom, I would say. Um, people who, just get with people who's already in the culture. So I want, cause you know, people can take something and run with it. And to protect the culture, you just want to make sure you're around people who's authentically from ballroom. Absolutely. And my last question for you, what would you say to anyone curious or who wants to join, but you know, they might be a little nervous. What would you say to them? I would say, just try it one time. You're gonna be scared your first time. You might get chopped, or you may win. You never know, but just try it at least one time. Absolutely. Thank you so much for chatting with me. Don't move fast, make you think you drink it. Control Gucci is a performer, promoter, and coordinator of Milwaukee's first awards ball. You also heard from Ricardo Wynn, who is a promoter and coordinator. They spoke with WUWM's Eric Vaughn fellow Kobe Brown. Earlier this month, a 28-year-old professional dancer named O'Shea Sibley was killed in New York. Sibley, who is black and gay, was voguing to Beyonce in a gas station parking lot when he was confronted and stabbed. A teen has been charged with a hate crime for his death. Michael Roberson is an adjunct professor at the New School in New York City, where he teaches vogology. He speaks with Kobe Brown about how Sibley's death has affected the ballroom community. How do you think ballroom culture has impacted LGBTQ plus people of color? Uh, and what role do you see it playing in the fight for LGBTQ rights and visibility? 
Well, so here's an interesting thing, right? There was a time we were calling it, this was the language we used to use. And this is no more than 10 years ago, but for so long, we used this language to talk about the Obama community. We would call it an underground Black, Latino, LGBTQ community. And there, it's no longer underground with the hypervisibility, right? And at the same time, it still is, right? So it, it's, it does these two things at the same time. It's so hyperly visible. It's so, it has so globalized. Yet there are a lot of people who don't know about it, right? And in smaller cities, it acts like in Milwaukee, it acts as a sort of underground space that most people don't know. New York is a little different. Um, and so I say that to say the larger Black and Latinx LGBT community, particularly in the Northeast, um, and in other places too, but I'll talk particularly in the Northeast, was absolutely classist over and against the Obama community, right? Looked down upon it, um, uh, had just pathological notions around it, um, decided it wasn't worthy, it was just people who were stuck queens, who didn't have an education, who didn't want to work, and all these other things. And so it dismissed the community, particularly and then specifically during the AIDS crisis, where can Black community-based organizations, being Black gay community-based organizations, were created into fight for AIDS, the organizations, the movement, ostracized ballroom out of it. So ballroom had to fend for itself. Today, it's interesting that now ballroom is seen as its own community, and in fact, most people know about globally Black LGBTQ folk because of this community. So it's very interesting. So I think ballroom is leading, particularly the way around visibility, has been leading. I could talk a little later, or talk about the community organizing initiatives that it's been involved in around those things, leading the dialogue around gender expression and gender identity. Um, oftentimes are on the front lines of these Black Lives Matters movements um, uh, representing Black queer folk in many ways. Um, are in this salacious relationship with Hollywood because of Pose and Legendary. I could talk about some other stuff as well. Um, has globalized itself into other nations that even nations that are predominantly white and created radical free spaces, even for white folk. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I want to touch on that too. Uh, we have... Uh, pieces of pop culture like Madonna's Vogue. We also have these shows like Pose coming out and really bringing this, what people thought to be a subculture into this global phenomenon. Uh, how do you see ballroom culture continuing to evolve in the future? And what changes do you anticipate seeing in the coming years? Uh, I know here in Milwaukee, there's a current movement. Uh, people are worried that, you know, these spaces that have been historically for black and brown uh, folk are being taken over so then your questions are wonderful um but 1990 is a interesting year because two emblematic events come out at the same time one is that jenny livingston's white queer woman documentary paris is burning emerges in independent screen film festivals and it was through the lens of this white lesbian and then the same year Madonna comes out with her song Vogue, and she has, of course, Vogue is the dance form that's in, that's ballroom. It comes out of the house ball ballroom community. The culture production comes out of the community. And she uses, she does have as representation, Jose and Louis Extravaganza, but she never attaches, she never historicized that she got 
this culture production from this community. And still today she hasn't really. Um, and so here you have these two events happening through the lens of white women. When in 1987, though, two Black women had Vogue in their videos before these white women talked about Vogue, which was Jody Watley and Queen Latifah, who also had two Black gay men in their videos, Derek Extrava, uh, Pendarvis Extravaganza, who just passed away, and Muhammad Omni. And so, and, and I, I remember hearing white folk, and sometimes Black straight folk too, particularly white folk, say to me, oh, you know how to do the Madonna Vogue? Like she created, people really believe that. And she allowed it to be said. And I don't, I'm not saying, I don't know if she intentionally allowed it, but she, it was allowed to be said. So fast forward, and we were, and don't get me wrong, I can talk this political stuff now because I'm more aware. Back then, outside of Madonna though, back then when Pirates is Burning came out, I was like, yes, yes, yes. Here, a community that's being visible, yes, yes, yes. And then you begin to look at things differently. So fast forward to Beyonce and her renaissance. So, And she's a Black woman. So I like the idea that this Black woman is lifting up, right, um, this culture in some ways. But then she makes a mistake and thinks that she's do, lifting up house music when it's really dance music that she's lifting up. But that's okay. Um, the fundamental mistake to me that Beyonce has made is that, again, she redid her You Can't Break My Soul song, remixed it with Madonna's Vogue. And she thought that she was in, she thought she was being a black feminist by invoicing black women's names, right? You know, the Janet, the Hallie, the, the Lizzo, in place of the white folk names that Madonna had. And, but not realizing that most ballroom people still have a tension with Madonna. Here's a white woman who took from black culture and you call her queen mother, this white woman, and you lifting her up and then you invoicing black women under her in her song, problematic. Um, I think the idea of Pose, uh, of course, created by Stephen Canal, who's an Afro-Latino gay man, and Ryan Murphy. And the idea of Pose helped change some of that narrative. Uh, having this cast of five trans women and two black gay men was, was not only historical, but uh, was so important at the time, you know, predating these these anti-drag, anti-drag, anti-trans legislations. So that has been so significant. The other piece was that he, Brian Murphy allowed for ballroom people to do apprenticeships and to become SAG members, so to create the infrastructure so folks can have their own skill sets so we can take our, um, um, we can tell our own stories. And I've benefited from that. I was a cultural product, I was a cultural consultant for Pose for three years. And there's some things as a result of that than I am doing in this moment. So I think though, last thing I say about that, there's a tension in the community of wrestling with this, which is who are we now, right? The question, who are we now? You know, are we now in a community that's so invested in it because we want to get gigs or because we, we want to get discovered or are we a community that, that organizes over and against things that we're confronted with by using black joy? So those I think are the tensions. I like ballroom because we like to wrestle with stuff versus reconciling with it, right? Continue to wrestle and wrestle, debate it, argue it, you know, um, scream at each other about it. 
Yeah, and you know what, there's a lot of conversation happening about, you know, how Vogue and how ballroom culture is perceived and how it's handled. And despite progress that has been made in recent years, violence is still prevalent in the community. Uh, Recently, earlier this month, O'Shea Sibley, a 28-year-old black gay man, was stabbed in New York for voguing. How do you think ballroom culture can help to combat violence and discrimination against LGBTQ plus folk individuals? Uh, And what steps can be taken to create a safer and more inclusive uh, world for all members of the community? So O'Shea was part of the ballroom community. And thank you for saying voguing because a lot of, you see a lot of the black gay political pundits say he was dancing. And it's important to say he was voguing. And, you know, I knew it was a watershed moment by the way people were responding when it happened. The notion of expressing yourself freely, that you get your life taken away. Most people outside of New York City would say, even in New York City, because the perception or the misperception is that it's such an open, historically, that's why people moved to New York City. And yes, even in New York City, that you're so free and you express it, that it becomes the excuse of justification that is that it's an affront to your religious beliefs. And so this is not the first, of course, um, and it's not just the these deaths just does not happen through violence. You know, there's intersectional deaths that the Baltimore community continues to confront around health, health, wellness, you know, things around HIV and and, 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 and diabetes. And, and, and we lost seven people, including O'Shea, in a two-week period. The iconic pioneer, Devon Elite, the iconic pioneer, Carmen Extravaganza, the, the legendary Dr. Stefan Wallace, Elite Manolo Blahnik, creator Mark Jacobs, the legendary Chloe Mugler. And so this, and it goes on and on. And so in 2007, we begin to see a trend of death. Late December 2006 and 2007, realized it was all born And 2008 became more, 2009 became more. And so we began intentionally having these organizational efforts, organi- community organizing efforts. And so Ballroom has created some things that's come out of that, like House Lives Matters, National Leadership Development Initiative, of course, Nuance and Black Lives Matters. This was created by my daughter, Dr. Jennifer Lee, who was the Deputy Executive Director at the HEAT program. The idea that you develop leaders within the community to begin to go, to, to begin to confront, you know, systems of oppression that go beyond HIV. That's been around since 2016, the Baltimore Freedom School Project, Keeping Baltimore Community Alive Network, the Crystal Abasia Initiative, like a Ballroom We Care Initiative. If you go particularly in New York City to HIV community-based organization, most of the people on the front line are now ballroom folk. So you see all of this, um, this sort of movement within the ballroom community. One of the things that I think we we have not been the best at, which is lifting up that stuff, right? That doesn't get lifted up as much as, if, say, violence or or tension competition happens in, in Barbara. But those are the things that continue to happen. And so you, there, there is, I think the O'Shea thing 
is a moment, um, a watershed moment. You see Beyonce says something, Tracy Ellis Ross, Vanessa Williams. Um, but it's not just one moment. This is a continue, particularly with Black and Latinx trans women, who continue to be beat and brutalized and murdered. And this happens to be no outcry. But Baldwin has been on the front line of this for a while. Michael Roberson is an advocate and adjunct professor at the New School in New York City. He spoke with WUWM's Eric Vaughn fellow, Kobe Brown, for the final installment of his We Gaze series. At WUWM.com, you can hear all the previous episodes of We Gaze, which explores the stories and unique experiences of Wisconsin's LGBTQ people. You can also find it as a podcast. Coming up next, we'll go on a data collection mission in a futuristic world with giant zebra mussels and musical sturgeon. That's coming up next on Lake Effect on 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR. This is Lake Effect on 89.7 WUWM. I'm Joy Powers. Imagine a world overrun with invasive species from the Great Lakes. Now imagine that world with a little creative license from 25 Milwaukee area artists. We're talking giant zebra mussels, radioactive seaweed, and fish that double as musical instruments. Fuzz Pop Workshop brings this world to life through Deep Lake Future an immersive art experience going on now at VAR Gallery in Walker's Point. In this world they've created, your mission is to collect data to study invasive species, while also playing synthesizer sturgeons and making rainbow shadow puppets. Lake Effect Sam Woods recently toured the exhibition, meeting some of the artists who brought it to life. We'll hear first from Daniel Murray, founder and creative director of Fuzz Pop Workshop. Yourself and Fuzz Pop have brought a experience to Milwaukee uh, called Deep Lake Future. And so what is Deep Lake Future? What is this experience? Yeah, that's a great question. And I think one of the things I've loved uh, in seeing our visitors, our guests come through is talking with them about how they describe it and seeing their reactions. Some people say, I feel like I've stepped into a movie or, you know, this is like a science fiction film. Uh, some people compare it to things like Beyond Van Gogh or some of those other more well-known uh, immersive exhibits. But I think it's kind of like Beyond Van Gogh meets the streets of old Milwaukee meets Alice in Wonderland. It's an immersive art experience, an adventure where you step into the story and you walk through this world that we've created. Uh, but it's more than stepping onto a movie set. You get to be part of the action. You're part of the story. You get to make music. You get to paint with light, interact with uh, state-of-the-art video projections. Uh, you get to design your own zebra muscles. So it's a, a hands-on interactive experience. Um, we really hope it's for all ages. We've tried hard to make it exciting for Everyone from, you know, little kids who love to run around and find all the hidden surprises to 
you know, adults who want to dive into the layers of the story and the narrative that we've created and just enjoy the, you know, the detail and the, the visuals and the world that we've created. Can you talk more about the premise of Deeply Future? So uh, my understanding is that it's you know set in set in the future where invasive species in the in the Great Lakes have kind of progressed and, and changed and morphed and just created a whole new world. So we started this concept as you know jumping off from the idea of invasive species in the Great Lakes. Uh, this came about because I you know I grew up in uh, the Milwaukee area, but have been in California for the past twenty years. Uh, and recently returned and wanted to create something that really spoke to the to the local, to the regional. Um, you know, Lake Michigan has always been an important part of my experience in my life here. And so we started there. How can we make a fantastic world uh, that's you know grows out of something through the Great Lakes? And invasive species are you know an important part um, that's transformed the ecosystem uh, in the region, Lake Michigan and beyond. Uh, but we really use that as a jumping off point to think of you know, to make something fantastic. Um, and so the idea is thinking into the future, the Great Lakes have flooded after sea level rise, invasive species have overrun the ecosystem, and scientists are trying to find a way to survive. Uh, so integrating technology with these invasive species and experiments that of course have gone wrong or unexpected yeah. and created new creatures, gigantic, fantastic versions of the sea lampreys and the zebra mussels that we hear so much about. Um, and so we, you know, we started with that and used that as a way to really stimulate some really, you know, creative and imaginative uh, take on some of these important issues in the, in the area. So after this interview, I'm going to go on a little tour and have my own reactions. But what have you heard from folks about um, what they've gotten out of uh, Deep Lake Future? Yeah, I think one of the goals for this was really to spark creativity and imagination and, you know, thinking creatively about some important issues, but really just to think in exciting visual and interactive ways. And, you know, I love hearing parents say, my daughter's imagination is going crazy running around this place. Um, or parents or others, again, saying this is like nothing they've experienced before. And that kind of unexpectedness um, is really something that we're going for. How can we create those kinds of surprises and experiences? You walk into a room or into an environment that we've created, and it looks like one thing, but as you move through it, it transforms in front of you. Last question before I see this thing, and I'm really excited to see it. Great. How long do folks have to, to see this? Yeah, well, so we plan to run at least through the end of the calendar year, through December, um, but depending on the audiences, we may run until next spring. We've really thought of this as a prototype, as a first attempt to build an immersive experience, and our hope is to build something much bigger, you know, the warehouse scale version of this, with many more artists and hands involved, more space, more experiences. There's so many ideas uh, that came up through this design process that we've said, that's for the 2.0 version. Let's get this one built, yeah. and then when we do it bigger and better, uh, we'll, we'll add all of these other features. So we're really excited to already start thinking about what that next version is going to be. Sure. All right, I'm excited. I'm done talking about it. Let's be about it. I want to see this thing. Sounds great. Come on through. So after our interview, Daniel took me on a tour of this Deep Lake Future experience. That started with a decontamination because, you know, I don't want to bring pathogens in from this world into this deep lake future world, as well as a quick orientation that explained the series of events that led into the world that I was about to walk into. Lots of floods, natural disasters showing on the screens, a robotic voice telling me about experiments they had run on the new species discovered, and all they had learned and how this was a great grand new future. 
and even Daniel himself telling me to be on the lookout for any strange growths in the next 10 to 14 days, both, you know, for my own health, but then also so that, of course, I could take part in lab tests and they could learn more about this future. But after decontaminating, we stepped into a hazy universe dominated by a deep bluish purple background with giant shrimp and massive zebra mussels and floating seaweed that looked like it had grown eyes or perhaps a fluorescent flower bud. So this is all supposed to be underwater. I'm seeing some kind of like shrimp looking, um, some fish. So a number of the invasive species have grown to gargantuan proportions. We've got some uh, blood red shrimp, giant mutant sea lampreys, our giant radioactive zebra mussels. Those are rather large zebra mussels. Zebra mussels are very, very tiny in real life. So it's, it's about as big as like a, a beach ball size. Beach ball versus, size. Yeah. 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 What is what is this? It looks like um, I don't even I don't even these know how to some, describe it. These are our uh, sentient seaweed. Okay. Uh, that glow. Yeah. In sequence with the music. Oh, all right. A lot of nooks and crannies in this in this experience here. And the zebra mussels are everywhere. Oh wow, what's this? The big, uh, big head that looks like with some zebra mussels on the, yeah, on the, the top, glowing eyeballs. That, this is the giant god that lords over this underwater world. What's their name? Moloch. Moloch? All right. Well, praise be to Moloch. Uh, thank you for bringing, keeping us safe in this world, or please keep us safe in this world. It's a god that's easily angered, so be careful. Oh, yikes. Okay, so I'm not going to look him in the eye. After steering clear of Moloch and his apparently unpredictable rage, I stumbled upon a secluded cave and met April Elizabeth, one of the 25 artists who worked on this project. And April was actually the lead artist in charge of designing the cave that I had just stumbled into, so I asked them more about how they got involved in the project, as well as about the cave itself. So we just walked into what looks like a underwater cave with some more uh, creatures that I do not recognize from my um, experience in 2023, um, which I'm told was designed by April Elizabeth, and I'm actually standing next to April Elizabeth right now. April, can you talk a little bit about your involvement in the project and what we're looking at here in this in this cave? Absolutely. So um, I was actually initially brought on as a story lead and just a design lead because my forte is illustration. So I do a lot of traditional fantasy illustrations and whatnot, and Daniel kind of discovered me um, through some of my underwater paintings that yeah. he really enjoyed um, but we really wanted to emphasize on this little underwater cavern where um, you can play um, this really beautiful synthesizer surgeon um, it has little like evolved underwater lilies that are sound reactive and kind of pulsate um, with this glowing algae on the rooftop um, Sorry, did you say synthesizer by... sturgeon like yes. you can like you can play it like a musical instrument yes Wait, really? You can? Yeah, well, so there's all these buttons and switches. So these buttons that you uh, that you touch creates different um, tones. Um, and then there's all of these uh, switches that kind of change that up. Um, and then this nodule right here controls 
the sound that's coming out of the speakers. So the entire idea okay. of this is to kind of like play around with the synthesizer or if you want, you can sit down and kind of enjoy the yeah. blooming algae. So you can, this is a kind of like a little a little nook within the larger project where you could, I could, you know, you could really create your own little world within this world. You are absolutely correct. Um, that was almost the entire vibe I was going for. Oh I wanted this to be very sensory, which is why you have all the gems on the wall. Every, you can touch everything in here. Mm -hmm. There's all the gems on the wall, which creates different texture. There's um, bits yeah. of like underwater moss and algae and stuff that I created with different types of yarn yeah. and de like making, you know, different pom-poms and stuff that you can touch and I, I really I'm very um, sensory oriented and whatnot and so I really wanted to create something that people could really literally put their hands on because um, I know with a lot of different exhibit spaces and art spaces it's very don't do that yeah. type of thing yeah. and um, I kind of wanted to create a visual experience where you could also put your hands on it and, and enjoy Enjoy the feels. Yeah, love it. <laughs> um, well, April, this is this is really, really, really well done, and I want to thank you both for your time right here um, with me. But the obvious time and effort that you've put into making this such an experience for anyone who steps into this little cave and this little world that you've <laughs> built within this larger Deep Lake Future world. Absolutely, it was it was my pleasure. Thank you. <laughs> Coming out of the cave and navigating all the radioactive seaweed and avoiding eye contact with Moloch, I finally found Daniel outside a bright cave that stood out amongst all the blue and purple that draped over everything else. We went on the rest of the tour, and I can tell you we walked through that bright cave, which ended up turning our shadows into rainbows, as well as a wall of art made by previous visitors, and of course, countless nooks and crannies to crawl through and maneuver around. And while I'm not going to take you through all of my reactions to all of these things, all in all, it's truly a unique experience, but especially considering it was the creation of 25 local artists working together on it. And I can tell you, I'm recording this a, a week after this tour, and at least so far I've noticed no strange growth. So I can say that it's probably safe to inhabit this world before it closes in December. And if I do notice any strange growths or mutations from my time in this Deep Lake future world, I'll be sure to record an update, as well as going for tests so Daniel and April and the rest of the team can learn more about the species that they've unleashed. That was Lake Effect producer Sam Woods, experiencing the Deep Lake Future exhibition going on now at VAR Gallery in Walker's Point. He spoke to Daniel Murray, the founder and creative director of Fuzz Pop Workshop, and April Elizabeth, one of the artists who worked on the exhibition. And that wraps up today's show. Thank you so much for being here with us. I'm Joy Powers. If you missed any of today's conversations, or if you'd like to take Lake Effect on the go, download our podcast. Search for Lake Effect wherever you get your podcasts to listen to all of our shows on demand. Tomorrow on Lake Effect, we'll tell you how the stories of the first Chinese immigrants in Milwaukee are being shared and preserved. Plus, we'll learn about new initiatives to help people re-enter successfully from the prison system. That's all tomorrow at noon, right here on Lake Effect, on listener-supported 89.7 WUWM. 
Milwaukee's NPR.